Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Jim Anderson, he's the CEO of Social Flow based in New York City. And we love to talk to Jim about all things kind of social media, technology, uh, the Internet. Jim, thanks so much for joining us here. So, you know, you look at Facebook, they won dismissal of the United States and the various states monopoly lawsuits. Is Facebook, are they in the clear now? I wouldn't say they're in the clear. I mean, it was a pretty stunning decision. I think everybody agrees there. And just look at their stock price if you want to see how stunning it was to the marketplace. But, you know, they, they are still a giant target, right? Uh, they are a monopoly. It's funny. I heard you all talking about Friendster and MySpace, you know, sarcastically, jokingly. Um, you know, you're not going to go. You're not going to go. God, thank God someone gets my sarcasm. You know, <laughs> otherwise I'd be great. off the air. I was thinking, oh, yeah, I remember Friendster, Friendster and MySpace. But, you know, TikTok and Snap are maybe the current uh, you know, analogies. And what Facebook will say is they compete every day for consumers' attention, right? And they, they don't have a monopoly. That's obviously their position. But they are not in the clear at all, right? Uh, you know, whether it be... Uh, the FTC going back and trying again with a stronger case, whether it be Congress actually passing, you know, antitrust law, which is, is going to require a, a level of bipartisanship we have yet to see, or whether it's something in the EU or other jurisdictions. This was a U.S. victory. It was a big victory for Facebook, but they are by no means out of the woods. I'm looking at uh, a list of other companies that are worth a trillion dollars. Facebook briefly yeah. eclipsed one trillion dollars. Actually, I think it still is worth just about $1 trillion. And the others are Microsoft, which, well, it's worth two. We were talking about Apple is worth more than $2 trillion. Amazon is worth almost $2 trillion. Um, and, and, and Google is um, one, two, one and two-thirds trillion. These are, these are big companies that um, do stuff, arguably, that we all really need. They, they really improve the quality of our lives. And... Does Facebook belong on this list? Well, it, the stock market seems to think so, right? Um, you know, if, if you're going to be in that kind of company with $2 trillion companies, or, or we'll say $1.7 trillion in the case of Google, uh, you know, they, Facebook is a consumer attention company. And what they've done, arguably better than anybody else, is for 2.5 billion people around the world create a habit of them coming back every single day, right? Their daily active users number is their most impressive one. And so clearly people are getting something out of that. And, and your points about the misinformation, the impact on elections, I mean, there's a lot of negatives that go along with that. But also remember, you have the ability to connect with family and friends, stay in touch with people you haven't talked with in years. I mean, there's clearly something that's bringing people back. And, and Facebook, just as importantly, has learned how to monetize that, right? They, they make massive sums of revenue from advertising off of that. So they built a business and a business model that goes along with that consumer attention. And, and I do think they belong on the list. They're obviously very different than Microsoft or Apple or Google. I, I will say I use uh, I also use Facebook almost every day. So um, I, in regards to the misinformation, it, it seems like Google has done a much better job handling this than has Facebook. And Facebook seems to go, you know, kicking and screaming into um, the land of regulation. Why don't they do a better job of getting all of the fake news and the, you know, anger, hate and vitriol off of their website? 
Well, I'm going to debate that point with you. I'm not sure that I would agree Google does a better job with that because specifically, remember, Google owns YouTube. You, you typically don't hear about Google and misinformation. You hear about YouTube and misinformation, but Google, of course, owns Good that. Point. And Good YouTube point. arguably has a, a bigger problem than, than anybody with misinformation and, and has the exact same types of problems that Facebook does, which is when you get to such a massive scale, there's only so much humans can do. There's only so much machines can do. Decisions are inconsistent at best missing at worst. And so it, it is a very daunting problem. I'm not, I'm not suggesting any of us should cry a tear for one and two trillion dollar companies. They've got the resources to try to solve this. But it is a very daunting problem on a scale that nobody has ever been able to handle before. Jim, um, do you expect, is there an appetite within Congress to maybe take a much tighter rein on big tech? I, there is absolutely an appetite there, but I'll, I'll give you two, two things there. One, Republicans and Democrats both very much want to go after big tech, but for very different reasons, right? So, again, how do you get those reasons to align in action? I think there'll be an impetus, but the thing, thing, thing that people aren't talking about is I'm not sure there's that much consumer uh, attention and, and interest in antitrust. I mean, it's a snoozer of a topic, and as big as the news was yesterday for Facebook and its stock price, we track uh, you know, consumer attention and we look at the different topics and the antitrust interest and then the number of people clicking on stories about antitrust is microscopic compared to things about the economy and fa even fashion, you know, which is a, is a great sign for, for retailers. You know, fashion and sports and those kinds of things are far, far more interesting to consumers. And ultimately, politicians respond to consumers. It's not at all clear to me that there's the consumer pressure on Congress to actually cause them to work in a bipartisan way to actually follow through on their threats. All right. Always great to get your intelligence on these issues, Jim. Really important, I think, for us and, and for listeners. Jim Anderson, the CEO of Social Flow, talking to us about Facebook, the big win yesterday, and the value. It's now worth more than $1 trillion. This is Bloomberg. I want to get right now straight back to, well, maybe she'll have something to say about small caps, but I think we're going to focus more on um, fixed income and equity strategies, uh, a bigger picture look. Janelle Woodward joins us. She is president at Mackay Shields. Um, they are a $158 billion global asset manager. Janelle, let's, let, let me get your outlook on what's going on in this market first. I keep getting this um, mental image of a roller coaster, you know, right when you get to the top and it's kind of slowing down, about to crest and... Um, you're at all-time highs on equity indexes. People are starting to really worry about inflation. Uh, Fed members are starting to say, we need to raise rates by the end of next year. I'm getting that feeling in my stomach. Do you get that as well? Uh, well, thank you for having me. Um, I, I think the good news is we don't have that feeling in our stomach, but I do think that we recognize that just like last year was quite unprecedented, the, the recovery is, in, is unprecedented. And anytime we go through an inflection point when it, when it comes to policy, there's some digestion that needs to happen. You know, noting the hawkish tone of the Fed earlier this month, I think we left quite constructive. And I think some of the themes that we've seen across equity markets, we've seen across fixed income credit markets as well, and, and credit's been really well supported going into month end. So, Janelle, one of the things that the market focuses on somewhat, but it seems like it's completely focusing on, on the Fed here, is fiscal stimulus. We've got some, a couple of different bills kind of bouncing around Washington. How important is that to your outlook for the market, if at all? 
Yeah, it's certainly uh, important. And I think if we look back earlier in 2021, a lot of the interpretation around fiscal policy and, and what it meant uh, played a significant role in the, in the rate market. You know, when we look at the infrastructure bill on the table, um, you know, the bill itself, $580 billion, isn't significant per se, um, but definitely is, is a nod in the right direction. Uh, we think it's, it's a very positive development when we think about our infrastructure needs. Uh, you know, we're constructive on the compromise, uh, but we also think that there's going to be a flow through into fixed income markets from a structural perspective. Um, and in that context, we're really, we're really focused on the implications on the muni market in particular. Uh, what happens to the muni market? I mean, especially with this huge influx of cash, and it's a market that's so conservative and kind of slow to make moves. What are the effects? Yeah, I think what's interesting is we look back across fixed income markets over the last year. You know, one of the things we've noticed is really some of the structural shifts that have taken place. And one of those areas is taxable munis, and we've seen a significant growth in the taxable muni market. And so when we put that against uh, the infrastructure bill, um, you know, a lot of that debt will end up flowing into the municipal market. And we think it creates a lot of just a really constructive opportunity for investors, both in terms of diversification, um, the ability to invest in clean water and public power and public housing in in the central entities. Um, But at the same point, aligned with the, the infrastructure bill, um, you know, there's a sustainability aspect of this that we're hearing more and more about from our clients, and uh, we think really it is a terrific opportunity uh, for investors. So, Janelle, real quickly, talk to us about ESG investing. We hear a lot more about it. How do you guys factor that into your investment process? Yeah, I think it's, it's critical, and as we think about, you know, what we should be looking at from an analysis perspective and, and what constitutes materiality, uh, e, S, and G factors have become more and more part of, of this dialogue. You know, it's both about downside protection, uh, but also about just the direction of, of, of businesses uh, longer term. So we see an opportunity uh, through this growth, as I mentioned, in the, ta- in, in the taxable muni space, but we also see it broadly uh, across, across the taxable fixed income space. Uh, very exciting for Mackay today, we actually launched ESGB, uh, which is a core plus uh, taxable uh, ETF uh, focused specifically on ESG, and, and we think it's really important, uh, really, to demonstrate this this value uh, proposition to our clients uh, within a, a core right. fixed income place uh, where they're allocated. So we think it's going, going to continue to be very topical and important to investors going forward. All right, Janelle, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. As always, Janelle Woodward, she's president of Mackay Shields. Right now. Let's get to something completely different. It is uh, 20 past 11 right now in New York, uh, 20 past five here in Germany. I want to get over to Scott Freeman. He's the co-founder and partner at uh, JST Capital, um, talking about the latest crypto news with us, giving us his outlook on the space. And um, Scott, what do you think about, by the way, Dallas is a good place for crypto. I mean, maybe Austin is better. Right. But um, it's a place where I think it, there's a lot of new uh, um, uh, sort of frontier kind of business going on. And I guess that's is crypto still in that stage, Scott? Yeah, I think so. I think listen, there's always, there's always been a lot of technology talent in Austin. And um, more recently, people have been leaving California to Texas for tax reasons. And I think that's just really 
um, making Texas, Austin, Dallas more and more viable for people in the crypto space. All right, Scott, so we've seen the volatility continue in, let's say, Bitcoin, for example. It's up 4.7% today. It bounced like it has in the past, kind of off that $30,000-ish level. It did get a little bit below here. Talk to us about China. That has been a big part of the narrative recently, and it's not been good. How do you think about some of the issues coming out of China in terms of ban on mining and restriction on crypto companies? And how material is that for crypto? Well, you know, I think for Bitcoin, it obviously caused a, uh, or is a big factor in the climb we've seen over the past few weeks. Um, but, you know, I think all that is already priced into the market. I think, um, you know, crypto, Bitcoin is, is looking good going forward. And I think for all of us who have been in crypto for a long time, we've seen these issues pop up every few months, whether it's China, whether it's technology, whether it's hacking. I mean, we've been through this. Crypto is just a very, very volatile asset, and this is just another example of that volatility. So um, what happens to Bitcoin now? I mean, when I think about price action here, I feel like if it drops below 30000 that could be problematic. But I don't know if that's just because it's a round number that I've heard people rattle off uh, a lot. Um, and I feel like if it's going to go up, it needs to go back towards... 50 and change to um to show success is that fair yeah i think that's fair i think we would kind of put the downside closer to 25 as opposed to 30 just given where the price action has been and where the activity has been honestly from from january of this year we've always thought of a range of 25 to 50 which has been pretty accurate generally speaking um but we think there's a lot of value in some of the other coins especially ETH. you know some people are looking to get into the ecosystem Bitcoin gets all the headlines, but it's not necessarily the best opportunity for for going forward. So I saw that uh, Kathy Wood and ARK, uh, they filed for a U.S. Bitcoin ETF in partnership with 21 shares. How important is that for the space to have a Kathy Wood uh, Bitcoin ETF? I think it's great. I think that on top of other positive news, ICAP came out with an announcement today, but they're going to be um, offering an exchange to trade Bitcoin. So I think things like that are all just great and bullish for the ecosystem. Um, we're just waiting for the SEC to actually approve one of the ETFs. I think that would be great if one there, happens. There are already a bunch in Canada if you want in, and there's other ways yep. to. I, for me, Kathy Wood seems like I thought she wanted to be on the leading edge of technology. Uh, isn't she better positioned in Ethereum or in DeFi? Like what what's she doing in digital gold? Well, I think she does both, right? I'm, I'm guessing that she's looking at all the opportunities and says, you know what, she has a good name. She's very well regarded. She's very reputable. And my guess is that she thinks this is a good opportunity just to increase the assets she has. You know, it's it's interesting, Scott. I'm wondering, it seems like the market, um, if you just look at the volatility around Bitcoin, it's searching for additional signs of validation maybe for crypto. Um, you know, you had... Um, you know, you had Elon Musk, you know, buy some crypto, buy, buy, I'm sorry, buy, buy some Bitcoin and allow Bitcoin to be used for purchasing of, of some of the vehicles. What's the next big thing that you think the market's looking for in terms of validation of crypto as, I guess, maybe an asset class, a real viable asset class? Yeah, I think that there will be others that come into the ecosystem that provide access to it. Um, we're working with some of those parties right now, whether they're being um, banks, brokers, private banks, right. people overseas. I just think you'll you'll start seeing more and more 
people yep. from traditional finance offering those rails and access to the ecosystem. All right, Scott, thanks so much. Scott Freeman, co-founder and a partner of JST Capital, giving us our seemingly daily update on all things crypto. We'll have more coming up. This is Bloomberg. Interesting news this morning. United Airlines goes all in on premium flyers with 270 jets and some upgrades, uh, 200 Boeing MAX planes. That's big news, I think, for both United and maybe even more so for Boeing. So when we talk about the airline biz and uh, building planes, we talked to George Ferguson. He's the aerospace analyst uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence. And George, we got to start with, if you can disclose this, where are you today and why are you where you are? Hey, Paul. Good day. So. I'm in Dallas with all that great discussion about Dallas just on the on the uh, on the radio. Uh, I guess airplanes in Dallas though isn't a bad thing. A lot of important airlines here, right? American and Southwest. There's a conference down here in Dallas called Aero Engines America. I'll be uh, on a panel on Thursday to talk about uh, maintenance and you know the useful life of an airplane. All those heady subjects. So, George, so am I to understand that there's actually a real conference taking place with real people? Yes, sir. Live people. I think there's silver. That's how they do it in Texas. That's how they do That's it in right. Texas. They, they don't hide away in corners wearing masks exactly. and keeping distance. It's Texas, um, which is, I mean, I'm not saying we should all act like that, but it's one of the things I love about Texas. I love, uh, I love the airport there. Um, just because Solomon Brothers thought it was a bad place to be doesn't mean <laughs> I agree. Um What's the state of the airline industry then now, George? I mean, are we are, are we going to see a Texas-sized comeback, or is it going to still be a while before the all-important business traveler gets back on the bus? Well, apparently uh, United thinks there's a Texas-sized comeback coming. Uh, what, what we see at Bloomberg Intelligence is we've had a really nice summer, uh, I think a better pop in leisure demand than we thought we were going to get. We're starting to see that transition into the fall where that leisure traveler is starting to fade a bit. I think their employers are asking them to come back to the office and their kids are going to go back to school. Um, and so we're starting to see a little bit of a lull build as we get into the fall. We think there's going to be a little bit of time before that business travel picks up again because I think we've got to get these people back into offices and companies have to get up the curve on what travel policy is. For business travel, again, if you're going to Texas, they're open for business travel, but not everywhere in the world wants to take you uh, for a live business meeting. Uh, and then, it, so I think it'll take a time, some time to feather in business. So I think you're going to have a rougher 4Q, 1Q. Then you'll get back to a leisure bounce, I think, next summer, and we'll continue to build business as we go through the year, which will improve things too. But again, I think you're set for a little bit of a lull here in the winter. All right, George, again, the news of today, United buying a bunch of jets from Boeing. That's really good news for Boeing, it seems to me. What do, what do you make of it? Because, I mean, you know, United's obviously a huge global carrier, and they're buying a lot of MAX planes. Yes. So, uh, you know, what, what it tells me is we've been watching, uh, you know, Boeing very closely because we've, we've been a bit concerned about their ability to deliver airplanes at the rate they want to build in 2022. They want to get to 31 airplanes a month. 737s, I'm talking, uh, by the beginning of 2022, and when we were looking at the customer base and the challenges, one of the big challenges is China hasn't approved the MAX yet, and they're always a source of a lot of de uh, demand for airplanes. We still have a bit of a trade tiff going on there, uh, and so we don't see that clearing up right away. I think it's become a bit political 
India not letting the Max in. We were very concerned about how Boeing was going to build those 31 and who they were going to ship them to. It looks like the strategy of Boeing has been go back to your good customers, give them great deals, accelerate some of their existing orders, and build out the delivery sky build out the delivery skyline for 2022 and 2023. So if you look at the way you know United mm. take I think some 68 airplanes in 2023, I think 40-ish in 2022. If you look at what's happening now, they're building out that base delivery levels they need for 2022 and 2023 with some of their more important U.S. customers. And that's, that's really, I think they probably got a great deal. I think they probably brought Boeing to the table to negotiate a great deal. And they said, we got to invite Airbus as well. And then they picked up the A321 probably at a good price because Boeing doesn't have a product in the lineup that matches the old 757. Uh, you know specs, and so that 321 does uh, a 757 replacement for United. I like the big ones. Are we going to see any more? Of the you know I like the 747 800. Um, <laughs> I like school. a roomy a roomy ship. Are those done for? And we only got about 20 seconds left. Yeah, they are done for. The good news is they're cheap, and so if you like them, go out and put in a bid. <laughs> exactly. I was in the market for a Max Seven business jet, but maybe I'll just buy an old seven forty seven eight hundred and have it retrofitted. Uh, George, always great to get some time with you. Thank you so much for joining us out of Dallas, George Ferguson, a their senior aerospace and defense and airlines in- analyst at a real life conference. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.